Yeah. How's that going? Going. Good. Going long. You can hijack food. My meme may hide yourself. All right, well, I think we're there. So I'll come online and uh, let's, uh, let's pray. Blessed Lord, this cost all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, just given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, we're Malachi. We left off. I marked it myself, so I know. We left off verse 9. Um, good there. And um, just to set our table again, when is Malachi writing? And what, what's the setting? I don't know if you have guess a year. Uh, he's between the 500s and 400s. Yeah, yeah. And what is what has just happened? What's going on in Israel? Um. They're in deep trouble. <laughs> well, um, so what has just been rebuilt, at least in the last generation or so? The temple. The temple. Yeah. You found this coffin right there. Um, and so uh, they rebuilt that, and then what after the temple needs to be rebuilt? The faith. <laughs> the faith. <laughs> the temple exists inside the city. So you have to do that. So, and Israel's about a, a generation after the rebuilding is is languishing. The question is, going on? Why? Why are we? And so this is the dialogue, and to some degree, you know, God's being blamed you know, for it. But the the dialogue has been um, we're in the middle of the section where he talks about. Uh, the worship being offered, and we finished last time with the idea that the priests were offering animals that weren't according to the Torah, you know, uh, sick or lame animals, animals that like like some some of what might be left over, oh, here we can give this to God because I don't really need it kind of thing, rather than what the Torah required, which was the first and best. So let's let's look at, at uh, verse nine. We we'll just start reading through because uh, um, yeah, because the best way is just to kind of read what what the critique is and kind of discuss it and talk about maybe possible possible applications to us because we are at a time certainly where the um, the Christian structure of Western civilization has been destroyed. And uh, there are efforts at rebuilding, and, and if we say, well, what's going on? These considerations here are not immaterial to, to our own self-reflection. The first time. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to you while, while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably? So you make an offering that is not what the Torah prescribed, and God help us. How, how does that work? What book are we at? Malachi. Malachi. No, I know that. Uh, chapter 1. Chapter, chapter 1. Verse 9. Okay. All right. Yeah. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 9. Okay. We did talk about 8. We did a lot of introduction last time. And so, um, that would seem to, to, um, comport something that we touched a little bit on, actually, in you know, church today uh, about the correspondence between behavior and prayer, that we're, we're interceding for God, God, please help me, but if we're not doing the things he's asking us to do in life in terms of honoring him with our first and best and in terms of loving others, Peter was talking about slander and sins of speech, if we're going around bad-mouthing people, we come to God and say, oh, hey, help me, help me. Well, well. All right. Um, and uh, there's Sarah Shear here. There, if you want to be, if you want to be at like not right on my. If you want to be next to me, I'd go on my right hand. But why would? So, um, but so if we're if we're talking about um, 
why prayers aren't answered. That the, the, the um, and, and this is probably about sacrifices for us. We're not offering lambs, but and he'll t- he'll talk later actually in in Malachi about the discipline of tithing. But but the idea that we offer God our first and best is not insignificant. So oh yeah, it's no big deal, you know. And and yet in our own all the things we really value, whether our hobby is or you know. I remember, I remember um, during, it was, it was just back, a recession, I, I remember years ago, seven, eight years ago, my timing, but I just remember like, economy was horrible. And I went over to, uh, yeah, I needed something for golf, I had some balls or something. So I went to Roger Dunn's golf. There was no recession at Roger Dunn golf. <laughs> it, was, it was like, people buying, you know, and so in other words, people saying, I don't, I can't do it, I can't afford it. It was always relative. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that is a big indication of a value system when, you know, I can't really give here, I can't really, but, but hey, you know, but my, 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 all of the things I like are really well, well, uh, well uh, accounted for. Mm-hmm. And um, God had already upgraded people in a different prophet, Zechariah uh, and Haggai, I believe. But where he where he said, you know, um, to to spur the rebuilding of the temple a little bit earlier, he said, "You're all living in panel houses, but my the temple is just so what?" <laughs> In other words, it's not because you can't afford it here. Let's 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 get going on this. So this idea of offering that that and, and we sort of get this in the liturgy and we talk about we offer ourselves, our souls, and bodies. That the idea that of a of a either a perfunctory thing that substitutes for our heart or inadequate things more convenient because we don't really want to give something. Oh, it's like I gave something. Those are things that clearly are being addressed by God through Malachi. Verse 10. Who is there among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in the words, worship that if God has told us how to worship, if God told Israel how to worship, and they're reestablished the worship and they're not doing what He said, He calls it vain. Why don't you just shut it down? I have the pleasure, He says, to Lord, folks, nor accept an offering from your hands. Now, here comes, um, I'll read this whole section, we talk a little bit of it because it's a little bit of question of how we um, interpret it, but verse 11, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name should be great among the Gentiles, in every place incense shall be offered in my name as a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the, the interpretive issue on this verse is that um, in the Hebrew there's no verb, as there often isn't. Uh, even in Greek. So it's my name, you know, and and the question is, is this a future shall be, or is this a present my name is great? And some scholars think that given the construction is, is the more likely translation. The question is, well, how is it that his name is now at this point in time great among the Gentiles who hardly know him? You, 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 I could suppose um, that, uh, There are ways to 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 to, to deal with this. Um, that with the Jews going to exile and coming back, there certainly were outposts of Jewish worship in um, various parts of the world. The Gentiles would begin to to maybe uh, attend in some way. Um, but the the tradition of the church always interpreted this as prophetic. My name shall be great among the Gentiles. So here you are. My people are not giving me the worship I deserve, but uh, but my name would be great among the Gentiles. And we remember that this is a biblical theme that that the message about God was to go to the Gentile to the to the Gentiles through Israel, and. This is a theme that uh, 
St. Paul and in his pickup because it still does that to a remnant of Israel, which is the 12 apostles who go. But they only actually eventually go to the Gentiles because Israel itself had rejected Christ. And so it was Israel's rejection that actually caused the Gentiles to come in. So this has an echo of this. He's not happy with the worship, but but this a situation is going to come where that my name is with the Gentiles. And the church fathers quoted this verse all the time, talking about the incense offering being a pure offering, which would be certainly the offering of the church as the body of Christ in Christ, but certainly epitomized in the Eucharistic offering of the church, which took place all around the world and typically involved incense. Mm-hmm. Incense was early on used in Christian worship. How can we only use it in one service? Um, some people apparently don't do well with it. So we've kind of made a commitment not to choke people out who do well with it. They can, um, they can wake up and come at nine. Um, I, my th- theory is that um, people ought to get used to it because mm-hmm. it does say in Isaiah 6 that, you know, that the house was filled with smoke. Yes, and so it might be smoky there, but mm-hmm. probably better smoke. Yeah. More hypoallergenic, more less allergy. Less allergy. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do, yeah. I mean yeah. I I I I um I know Sandra used to carry on. Well it also yeah, there's another thing in our in our tradition too, because we had people who were there was sort of this low church, high church thing where you know, an incense was a sign of high church or something. Ah, incense. So I think they that out allergic reaction was less yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why is the significance of incense? Why is it important? Well, it was, it was always a part. It, I mean, let my prayer be set forth, and the side is the incense. Let the lifting up of my hands be an evening sacrifice. Incense was commanded by God to be offered in the temple. He commanded the incense offering. Um, the symbolism of it, of course, the practicality of it in the Old Testament, where the temple is essentially a slaughterhouse. Uh, help us smell better. <laughs> but I think that we're sensing us is it helps us smell better. No. We put ourselves to God. We need a little deodorant. <laughs> but it's it's you know it's sort of the symbolism of prayers rising, and it says that in Revelation, the the the, the uh, prayers rose is the smoke of incense. Yeah. It doesn't mean that if you don't have incense, your worship doesn't count. But the general, I mean, the general bent of the church historically is towards fullness and sacramental fullness, more symbolism, more stuff. So the the um, the movement to towards liturgical minimalism is usually a reaction against the sort of a Reformation reaction against sort of. Uh, meaningless ceremonial people are doing this, and we are connected. So we just come out. We're just gonna, and, and there's a, there's a reforming point to that. But the 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 error of 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 the fullness of the sacramental worship was not the thing itself, but the way in which people did it. Much like Malachi is saying here, it's it's that it's not that there's something wrong with offering something in the temple with incense. It's that you're not bringing, you know, your, your converted heart and you're not offering it. So, so in, in general, I've noticed in our ministry that, um, you know, we'll, we'll have people come, you know, and this, this has just been an American reality that the evangelical movements, the renewal movements have tended to draw people who were in, in various kinds of more traditional mainline churches, a lot of Roman Catholic that way, some, you know, and then, they go through a season of, of you know conversion, and then they begin to hunger for the fullness, which is just exactly what the early church did in its growth. They just they just kind of kind of grew into a fuller expression. So, and there's always a pendulum swing. There's people who've been involved in in you know kind of just ceremonially <clears throat> elaborate worship that lack the presence of Jesus. They tend to migrate towards something more gospel oriented. And people who who've been you know who are looking to grow in worship, having experienced a real conversion reconnection, tend to learn to appreciate over time the fullness of the objective and 
and contemplative and sacramental dimensions of, of um, the fullness of worship. I would just say because I worship in different places um, at different times, if I'm with the Armenian group, I worship in the Armenian mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. And there comes a point, even though I understand the liturgy there, there comes a point of how many times can we cross ourselves? You know, like, <laughs> how many times? You know, it's a point of diminishing return, is what I feel. Yeah. You know, that, like, okay, even I, who can enter into that liturgical worship, it's like, again? <laughs> it just becomes too much. Yeah. And um, it takes away rather than, you know, once you're full, you're full, right? You don't just. Keep on going as in terms of your average person who comes to worship. You know, that's my experience. I'll just put it that way. That's what I think. Yeah. Or, or kind of, I've kind of learned with people, and you know, all of us, I say people, mm-hmm. uh, all of us and our experiences of worship is we usually have, have been trained to and have acclimated to experiencing God in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so, that's the way we know, and, and that's like, if you were like uh, from a, a cradle Armenian, this is something you got used to, mm-hmm. probably somebody might, um, that somebody would, would feel like, how could I just sit in a pew and listen to somebody or something? Uh, and then... Um, yeah, that's true. No, I, I don't want... I mean, it's not an active. What are you doing there? <laughs> that's interesting. I got kicked out of my meeting. <laughs> Okay. Here I am. Um, that's interesting. Huh. Well, you can see me here. You can't see me there because I'm showing the meeting, my meeting with only me in it, and that you know, the meeting has more. Why well, know what it is? I actually know what it is. Bear with me for a second. Did anybody here grow up in the low church? Like evangelical? Grow up where? No. Bible church? Episcopal low church. Oh, no. no. <clears throat> well, I did. <clears throat> and um, a lot of the bells and whistles in high church are considered too Romish mm-hmm. in low church. Too Catholic. So we didn't have incense, crossing, genuflecting, any of that stuff. But we still believed in the tenets of the Protestant faith. Yeah, well, I mean, most of that came, it wasn't really Roman, it was from the Oxford movement, and, and it was actually a recapturing of, in the English tradition, of the fullness of faith that the Reformation had in many ways uh, sort of abandoned. It had, um, um, yeah, just let this go, because I'm not. I mean, if you go to, like, the Greek Orthodox, when I was in Patmos, they're, like, three hours standing, kissing yeah. every icon. So, so my, my, my point here is only that, uh, and, and Elaine, you would, you would make my point, that you acclimated to experience God in a certain way. You also acclimated to certain historical animosities. Mm. Now, if you, were, if you were raised in an Anglo-Catholic parish, you would have seen those low churchmen as, you know... As the enemy of everything that is good, <laughs> and, 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 and so and that, and if you if you were raised in a in a kind of a Jesus people movement here uh-huh. in Southern California, and which was virulently anti Roman Catholic, yes. you would have you would have thought that they're they're just sacrificing kids, you know, and right. yeah. you 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 and and the truth is that there are errors and and heartfelt devotions. In all of those places, mm-hmm. so we just have to be aware. And I think everyone should be aware of is that, um, and this is something where I think Christian maturity can help us with that. Um, it may not be the thing for it. It may be the thing that you acclimated to experiencing God through, and there are legitimate critiques of excesses. I think, but we can at least be open to this is somebody else has had this experience of something that I haven't. So I, I can at least realize, because one of the, 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 religiously, I think, we tend to um, become, you know, we tend to see the world through our own experience, which is profound, and then we judge everyone else's experience by our own, which is not really, isn't really indicative of, of a universality the way God visits people. So, for example, you see some people have a, 
Damascus Road experience of conversion, and then they want everyone to have it. And somebody, well, just got to know Christ more gradually through their life, and their faith isn't sincere, but they want this from them. And, you know, so all those things, that is one thing I think I've learned a little bit. I definitely have trouble in some worship environments, but I, I think one thing that's helped me with some of this is having been to various environments where there's a variety of, of Christian people, like Fuller Seminary and Denver Seminary, where I spent time. You, I might not want to worship the way you worship, but I realize, okay, you're not, you're not insincere right. in your commitment. And I can respect it so I can, you know, I, I can, I can, I don't have to critique it, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, now, that said, I mean, the, the standard critiques I think are, um, in worship are, there, there's excessive stuff that, that just, and then there's also, but, but I would say that, that if we are going to, um, balance sacramental worship and, uh, or, compare and contrast, and what we call more, more cultural worship, it would be between objectivity and subjectivity. That that our cultural appetite in the, in the more Protestant evangelical world is for subject. You know, I want to have an experience today about this thing, and I, I want the thing happening to move me that way. Whereas in the sacramental experience, the reality is this thing, we're participating in this thing that's going on, it's understood to be real and reality, whether we feel it or not. And so the experience sacramentally is acclimating to the sense of presence, so we learn how to experience it. And But that said, everyone's faith needs subjectivity and objectivity. And if you never have you know, a, a palpable experience of God's presence in your life, and you know him that way, there'll probably be a problem. But if that's all you ever have, if every day has to be a, a new lightning strike, mm-hmm. and and you can't learn to enter into to see God's presence ordinarily in normal events and people, that's going to be a problem. So just a balance here, and that's what you see in these various things, I think, are different aspects of things. That's deep. <laughs> so um, back to our Malachi that the incense in our in offered our name. So so the church is understood historically as a as a prophecy of the way that 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 um, Israel's inadequate worship would lead to the gospel going out from Israel into the Gentiles. But I should say when I talk about Israel's inadequate worship. It really is the nation as a whole, but there always was a faithful remnant, St. Paul says. And then the sort of critique of the whole faithful remnant motif continues everywhere the gospel goes. Mm-hmm. And, for example, read in Revelation the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. This is within the first century, most likely. Critique of what's going on in some places. Yet, I have a few who haven't soiled their garments. So there's always the need, and this is actually central to our approach to the faith, is the theology of the remnant. That is, that that we cultivate the faith of the, of the most deeply committed, as and, and that will have a leavening influence on the whole, as opposed to an approach that is bringing a marketing income, to the thing without going, without a deeper formation into things that, that actually provide some kind of interior change. So there's that. Okay, verse um, 12. <clears throat> but you profane it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit is food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the soul and the lame and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? So I don't know that 
the priests are actually saying or the people this is contempt for but the attitude yeah do I have to go you know this attitude of worship I have to go you have to do this and, you know, where you're just sneering at it and versus the idea that we're, we're we're anxious to give God our first and best and oh what weariness um, you know perseverance is an important Christian virtue and so you're not always going to feel, oh, this is great. But there can be a, a resolve of the will that I want to do this because I want to honor God. There's a difference. There's, there's a, um, when you're tired and you don't feel like doing it, but you, you do it, you come and offer yourself as an act of the will with the best you have. I don't know what he's talking about here. Mm-hmm. This is, that, because that's, that's an act of the will that plays through the contrary pull. This is an attitude of just resentment, doing it grudgingly. That way you're doing it weary, wearily, but you're still doing it and you're happy you want to do it. Verse 14, but cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemish. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So I, I think the, the point here, again, also in offering the, the, the prescriptions of offering the first and best, the unblemished lamb, it's not God asking people to give what they don't have, but he's saying, okay, you had what the Torah prescribed, and instead of doing that, you offered what you wanted to offer. You know, as you trust, offer that to your local ruler or king and see how, see how it goes. <laughs> Chapter 2. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them, because you do not take it to heart. Now, a curse is very serious. Um, in De- Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, there's a series of blessings that come from obedience. And it goes on for a while, you know, blessed be your eating bowl, blessed be this. But then, but if you won't do it, cursed be this and cursed be that. It's, it's very uh, depressing to read. And he's saying, you're not doing what I'm asking. Therefore, there's a curse, which means, and you know, cursing your blessings can be either putting a curse on that which comes to the priest in his office of the tithes, or cursing, even when he's blessing people, it will disperse something that's not good. And this actually has a little bit of the the flavor of the remnant. The priests are supposed to be the people who represent the people to God and God to the people. And when they do it well, they have uh, their faithfulness can trickle out. When they do it poorly, their unfaithfulness can trickle out. And that might be some of the idea of the, well, curse your blessings, because what you're giving them, you're leading them in this way of of insincerity. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts. That probably is referring to, I mean, when you're slaughtering animals, all kinds of things come out. So that's probably that rather than... than, um, he's talking about there and one will take you away with it then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant with Levi may continue so the Lord hosts and we we know throughout the scripture that the um, while insincerity of worship in general is something God doesn't like um, he's particularly the, uh, harsh on those who have the office of priest mm-hmm. and uh, um, carry it out poorly. The first uh, brutal story of this is back in, we'll say, Exodus, when Aaron's sons are made priests and they go in and don't do what God said and they die in the spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, certainly Eli and his sons at Shiloh who uh, we're getting there, our morning reading from 1 Samuel, we're going to get to that whole story eventually, but um, he's, because Eli wouldn't discipline them and wouldn't 
that there's a serious, so the same kind of thing is happening here. So, he talks here now, my covenant with Levi may continue, says Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me, so he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. This highlights, and it goes on to say, for the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. It makes it clear that the priest is not simply a sacramental functionary. Mm-hmm. And we get this in um, Ezra, who was a priest who came back, who taught the people. So there is, there is um, even as there is now in apostolic ministry, a, a way in which there's a, a priest as a representative function towards God, there's also a, a teaching representation and, and function towards the people. Verse 8, but you have departed from the way, you have caused many to stumble at the law, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. Now, this, this, what do you suppose the partiality would, would be? Favoritism to some. Favoritism to some. So who, who, who would be, who would you be tempted to be favorable for? The wealthy? Yeah, those who have more. You treat them better than than uh, the poor. And what's interesting about the Torah, um, it it, it prescribes equal justice, and it even says in the passage, do not favor the wealthy or the poor. In other words, you don't, you don't, oh, you know, poor you, you stole and killed, but, you know, what could one expect of you? You It was always, it's none of that, It, it is, it is simply, Equal, but it's always a temptation in any area of life to be kinder to those who can help you. And it's always uh, a call of, of a Christian vocation to not serve or interact with people simply on the basis of what they can do for us, but on the basis of love and, and, and offering uh, both help and counsel, and correction, and it as might be needed, depending on the situation. So you mentioned also um, no partiality with the rich or the poor. So, but Jesus came to preach to the poor. We're all poor. Well, but, 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 but because the assumption of, of that, for example, uh, the, the Isaiah lesson that Jesus preaches in his beginning of his ministry in Nazareth, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel, the gospel to the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, the gist of that thing, and it says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, because what's happened, what happened in Israel, what, what still happens uh, in, in economic structures is they develop in ways that those who have more can can can, can Take advantage of those who have less. So in Israel it was, deaths were supposed to be canceled every seven years. Reset the playing field. Everything, 50 years, there was a jubilee year. Land went back to the original loan, and we reset it, we were back. That never happened. So people kept being in debt, people kept... So when Jesus talks about this, he is going to establish justice, because the Torah said to do this. And... Um, we saw some of this, for example, you know, when you see like when you finish reading the book of Ruth, where Ruth goes out to glean, and provision is made from the gleaning, and Boaz is a righteous man who listens to the Torah. He doesn't pick everything off the vines like he's supposed to. Not to you're supposed to. You're not supposed to harvest the edge of your field. So it was. It's really strict justice. It's not. It isn't um, in the sense of. Uh, some of our contemporary language, uh, a mere everybody's going to be exactly the same or strictly equal in everything they have, mm-hmm. is that everybody's going to have to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, but they're still within with those things. I mean, so for example, in Israel, 
you got your land, you didn't, you know, that's a, a major issue for us in our country. I just say it as a personal opinion. I'm not against free market, don't go say that. But mm -hmm. but the idea that people get to have all the land and parcel it out and no one can afford to live anywhere, mm -hmm. that's that's a problem we're facing. Mm -hmm. You know, there 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 are and yet in Israel everyone got their land. Now, in agrarian culture, um once you had your land, you could decide to be industrious and plant seed and harvest it and do good, or, mm -hmm. or you could neglect it. And the pro proverb says things about this, uh, mm -hmm. the slugger, the diligent person. So you wouldn't be freed from the consequence of your action. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you didn't do any work, you didn't make any money, you sell your land, you go into debt. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Seven years later, I, you know, whichever command of the Torah required the debt to be reset on your debt, eventually your descendants would be set free and get back up to speed, they can start again. Mm -hmm. But that's what happens when there's not limits to to how far you can. The Torah had specific limits to how far someone could go, and when they went, there was always a way of getting free. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what that's the justice talks about to to give that to give um, that. And it's a nuanced question in the modern world. It's very problematic to take biblical ideals and say, okay, we're going to impose this on the culture, make everyone do this. It's a fallen, disordered world. Mm -hmm. But in our own personal lives, how we love people, we have to realize some people, you know, it's, 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 there are structures that make it very, very hard for people who don't have anything to get out of not having mm -hmm. something. There's mental illness, there's mm -hmm. bad habits, there's a whole bunch of things. Mm -hmm. but, but that justice has to do with that. Not really a favoritism. Of course, that was a big thing in liberation theology, which which is big in Central and South America, where he talks about the God's preferential option for the poor. Hmm. Um, I'm not prepared to speak authoritatively. I'm just hmm. it's, a, it's an issue. It's, a, it's an issue. Well, I mean, you see that in Ruth. He's not. He's not giving out handouts. He's making sure that there are the edges right, of the right. field. If you want food, it's here, but you have to do that work, and it gets people back in the right frame of mind, if they can. There are a lot of issues here, so don't, don't, don't take my, but I, I just, we it's have to understand question. that there are, uh, our culture isn't ordered on Torah principles. Mm, that's right. And um, so that's, that's, that's the idea of, of justice, and it's always a challenge for us in our lives as we try to, to be just people. How do we do that in a system that fundamentally does have things? We always love the best we can, help that we can, try to do that the best we can, and wrestle, and wrestle with it. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons we say, come Lord Jesus, is this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it's uh, for example, I mean, we prayed for Bishop Wilson, you know, today, South Sudan. People start. I mean, there's. I, I, I can't. I don't have to do anything about that. We pray. We'll send something. You know. But it's the fact that it is so should make us discontented with the way things are. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And that's why it's really good to be in touch with the the hurt of the world. Mm -hmm. It's easy to withdraw behind a comfortable place. Oh, it's good here. Mm -hmm. And then and we we uh, you know we 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 close the gate and oh. And in many ways, that's the, that's really the critique of the rich man, rich man Lazarus. Yes. He developed a gate. Mm -hmm. Lazarus was outside the gate. Nice turn. Mm -hmm. It's all good inside the gate. Mm -hmm. And we should we should have a heart for that which is outside the gate, because Jesus, the Son of God, went outside the gate of heaven to come amongst us and bring us back into that place. opened all the borders. Was that? I said our president did a good job. He just opened all the borders. Well, again, I, I think the reality of this, we, you know, I'm, I'm not going to enter into a, a border thing here. But having said that, we we cannot simply have an idea that everybody is not us. Have, you know, and the whole country was. What is the sand of Statue of Liberty? Mm -hmm. Give me your um, tired, your hungry, yeah. your poor, your public masses yearning to breathe yeah. free. So yeah, we certainly can't just hey, come on in. Yeah. But we could certainly understand. What leads someone to migrate north? To, and if you live there, that's what you'd be doing. Yeah. Legally. So, legally. Well, legally, you know, I mean, that's easy to say when you can't really do it. And the point is, you have people from these countries. I don't want to solve that problem. I have an answer to it. Mm -hmm. 
either side. Clearly, you need to mm-hmm. limit it. But I'm just saying that as a Christian, mm-hmm. uh, and somebody reads the scripture, what did God say? Care for the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. And our attitude towards, and what were the strangers? They were called mm-hmm. resident aliens. Mm-hmm. That's what it means in the Bible. People who were there having no citizenship. So we, we don't honor law-breaking. we got to obviously do that. But, but uh, you know, Jose and Rhea who've migrated up because they're starving, and I don't have an answer to it, but it's, it's, we, can't be, we can't have no compassion for them. That's all I'm saying. What was this covenant of Levi? That's the priesthood that God gave to Levi. Okay, so he just says keep the covenant. Okay, yeah. so, so you're a priest, so you, you've inherited a vocation of priesthood vocation. through the Torah. Okay. And, um, okay, and we're all called to be king and priest now. That's right. So, I mean, and... We are, right. Priesthood is even for Israel, has a remnant idea that represented the whole people. So everybody, even okay. even the, the prophecy in Revelation, uh, the, fulfill, the Revelation verses says, I, um, you're, you, you, I, I, you, I made you uh, kings and priests, or kingdom of priests, mm-hmm. comes from Exodus. You should be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Mm-hmm. So the priests represented the whole people offering themselves. Okay. And that's really our Eucharistic theology. Everybody's participating in this thing. And so um, it has a derivative thing, but it it does um, tend to break down in its spread if at the people who are doing it at the core aren't doing it well. Right. Mm-hmm. Aren't faithful. Faithfulness should spread. That's what Levi, so he taught this way and it spread out. You're being unfaithful, so therefore it's, it's, it's having that kind of impact on the, on the uh, whole country. Okay. You've shown partiality. It's always something for us to think about partiality, how we, mm-hmm. it's always tend to be nicer to people who can do things for us and, mm-hmm. and be, you know, kind of get in the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and to think about that, you know, just in small ways in life, um, making time for people who um, can't do anything for us mm-hmm. because we have some sense of, of, of compassion or experience of God's love who came to us even though we really can't do anything for him mm-hmm. other than you know, respond to his love because God is love. So mm-hmm. if you feel that that's where this compassion comes from is, is from a love that desires everybody to share it. Verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal preciously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So, marry the daughter of a foreign god. What do you think he's talking about there? Idol worship. Well, it seems to be talking about marriage, too. Right. Right. So that if you were um, marrying a foreign woman, someone who's not the people of Israel, um, if you did it on the basis that, um, you know, you're accepting her as she is, she'd have to be able to bring her religion into your newly formed household 
and this would mean you're, you've got idolatry in your house in some way, and then you can go to the temple and say, hey, Lord, you know, listen to me. Um, Not talking about Solomon, though. Huh? Well, well Solomon started that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, he, he is the one who, when, when he married a foreign, met, loved many strange women, they all, when they came, brought with them their idols so, to worship. Is that what he's talking about? Well, I think it's the same kind of thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he says, the man who, who does that, who allows idolatry in his house and then brings an offering. Now, how do we know that this, this doesn't just mean ethnically a foreigner? Are there any situations in the Bible where a foreigner becomes part of the people of Israel? Abraham. Abraham. Ruth. Ruth. Rahab. Rahab. Mm-hmm. So, and Ruth has the quintessential line, right? Um, uh, I will go back to your country with you, Naomi. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. You can be my people. Your God will be my God. Mm-hmm. So she gives up that to become this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that God is not crit- critiquing just the fact that ethnically you marry someone else, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that but that you're you're tolerating the idolatry of that. Right. Now, how does this come over to us mm-hmm. in our time? <clears throat> An intermarriage with people who don't believe the unequal yoke. The only thing about unequally yoked as a phrase is in Corinthians where he uses that language, he's really talking about business, not marriage. Okay. okay. So, but but theoretically the idea is, yes, that, that you're, you're, you're entering into a, a marriage relationship with someone who doesn't share your faith, and there to some degree you you're going to have to be, you'll be influenced by this, this, mm-hmm. this thing. Or not. Huh? Or not. What do you mean? Well, I mean, Dean only recently came to this. I married him anyway, but it didn't lessen my faith. But you've been married for a while, and your own faith has had its own renewal. <laughs> so, so during during the time. So, I mean, there there's. I, I would say that you know um, that there there is. Yeah, I mean, so so that that's that. That is, um, there's no blanket principle that can be made to apply to everyone's marriage situation. Mm-hmm. However, the idea that someone who believes in Jesus Christ is, and is a disciple, that you will marry someone who does not, and, and not only does not, but actively pursues something else, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's a problem. Because that will influence you. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that's what he's talking about. That, now this is specifically idolatry here, so um, you you we, we have to be careful when we're making applications. The application here is this we're woman goes to, to her idol temple. You're marrying her. You're you're tolerating this in your house. Your children are going to be quasi whatever. So uh, what's that guy supposed to do? Not marry. Simply not marry her. To not marry. Her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Because we're married to God. I mean, he's talking about our. Our relationship. Yeah, no, we well, the kingdom of God for for those who are serious in faith. The kingdom of God is the preeminent value in your life, and things that don't fit into that, including marriage. This is actually the biggest way that the perspective of the New Testament differs from our contemporary perspective. That when the Bible talks about marriage or family, it's talking about here's the kingdom of God you're living in. And here's how this thing you're entering into earth is brought into the kingdom. We tend to, in our time, think about um, how the kingdom comes into our things to make us happy or whatever it is we, we want. But it's a, it's, it's a, the, vo- the New Testament vocational sense doesn't have that orientation at all. And it would say, absolutely, you don't. You don't do it um, if it doesn't. If it's not consistent with your commitment to things. Now, again, I, I want to be clear here um, that that nothing frees us from moral decision making. There are nuances to situations, of life circumstances, and people get married in one state, and then someone gets more committed to their faith, and someone else. There's all kinds of nuance of mm-hmm. marriage and and 
we all know things at 50 and 60 and 70. We know it 15 and 20 and 25. So we grow. So it's not, again, it's a principle here, though, that, and actually the New Testament deals with the reality of a mixed marriage in a different way because it often happens one person got converted and the other didn't. And St. Paul says, no, don't get divorced. Who knows what kind of influence you'll have. Right. Mm-hmm. But then your vocation then is to be faithful to your faith in the in, the, in a tension situation, mm-hmm. not to sort of compromise and go the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, so that's that's the that's the thing he seems to be talking about here that that marriage is not insignificant to the kingdom. This is a value that was closely held by the Jewish culture early, early on. They were admonished not to marry outside the Jewish culture, right? Well, so was the church until about a generation and a half ago. I mean, yeah. I never heard all, all these, all the modern, oh, well, Mary, this is, that's yeah. all yeah. 20th century and beyond. You didn't, just didn't have that happen. Uh, before that, that time. I didn't know it was happening now. That's why I said, really. <laughs> I didn't know the church was going, okay, it's fine. Well, I, I think it's, I think it's become, you know, uh, I, there's, it's, there's so many different manifestations of, of church and how this goes down. And, and then you can marry a Christian and you're both very lukewarm and neither of you really care. And the mm-hmm. kind of faith you both hold is, is barely recognizable in terms of historic faith. So mm-hmm. it's not, you know, there's just a lot of, nuance to the question. Um, for us, as a discipline of marriage, when people come to us and want to be married, if they're not members, uh, first of all, we they'll have to become, and both will have to want to be Christians. They don't want to be, we won't do that. Huh. And um, that's because we can't that's that, that, I don't think that's the, and, and what we try to do is with marriage preparation instruction bring people into choirs classes try to you know expose people to as much of the faith as they can be and then hopefully somebody takes so you're always you're you're bearing witness you're not um, you you never know what people are doing and thinking and believing and but. The point here is we the, to, to get back to um, kind of Elizabeth's point of the of the yoke. We should not willingly make a commitment to be in partnership with someone who has a central commitment in life to do something other than that pulls us away from our faith. And uh, marriage is certainly something that should be considered in terms of uh, faith. And most serious Christians I know. Approach it that way. And the more nominal faith is, the less so they approach it. Just the way it is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the thing, just one last point on this, because mm-hmm. it seems like what it's talking about here is somehow this Jewish person is somehow participating in the paganism. Mm-hmm. And then going to the temple, <clears throat> so mm-hmm. so so that's the real thing. It's not just entering into it, but then being co-opted into it mm-hmm. and doing this over here, and then come oh here I am here. Mm-hmm. So you have this sort of double-mindedness. Yeah. Kind of thing. Verse uh, thirteen. And this and this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet you say, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none of you deal treacherously with the wife of this youth. Um, this becomes a Jewish question up until the New Testament, uh, where there's a debate um, about divorce. Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? Then two rabbinic schools, one said, 
only for unfaithfulness, and the other sort of held that if she burnt the stew, who <laughs> was like, so it was, it was very, and this is making it clear that God doesn't like any of that. Why? <clears throat> Think in terms of symbolism and representation, what does marriage represent? Our union back with God. So God, God is married to his people. Mm-hmm. And um, how does, does, does every time that his people um, do something he doesn't like, does he just send them a divorce? Yeah, you burnt the soup. You know, Long suffering, continuous, and, you know, always, always, you know, so the, so, so the, and this is, gets right into the idea of Christian marriage that the, the sacrificial mutual love reflects his love. Mm-hmm. And when we're married and we get frustrated and we don't like what we see or we have to do, you know, we're learning to love like God loves. Wait, we don't like it. Pick up your cross. Yeah. And and so um, but the truth of that is is that the pursuit of like you're not making me happy, I want out. Mm-hmm. I understand there's abuse and there there are things that are extreme that need to be addressed. But in the general um, The issue is always is, is is typically something in the person also, and we have to learn to love. Um, and when we think, oh, you, I'm not happy here, I'm going to go here. That kind of modality gets you just unhappy everywhere, because mm-hmm. eventually, and and it, it's usually a failure to understand what's going on within you that you're searching for that no one is going to be able to give you. So, verse 16, for the, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Whatever else Malachi is clear about, clear about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, to, to uh, so there's a couple ways that we you know, probably need to. So a Christian vocation is is a marriage. To try to learn to love better. God wants us to do wherever we are. Now we're we're in a culture where there ha- there is divorce, and so um, and there are a lot of reasons that it happens. You know, some sometimes one party is more guilty. Sometimes mutual injuries. So you you can. Um, God can redeem, and it's not the you know it's not unforgivable. But we should understand, and it's like when we couples get remarried and been divorced, there's a process. But you, what you're looking for is someone who understands their role in what happened. When somebody comes to the oh, yeah, we want to get this my second marriage. So like, well, what happened to you first? Yeah, she was just that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Tell me, we know what happened. We know your role. And there was, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of times people realize, you know, in our culture, you could get married early, no preparation, no support of the community, things fall apart. Okay, you learn something. So it's this is Jewish people who've entered into the covenant of marriage in the in the context. There's a lot of nuances to this, so mm-hmm. it, it isn't uh, for us to go around yelling, "We hate divorce," but it, you know, it's it's. But in the church. <laughs> We we should you know we 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 uphold this and, and, and try to teach people to love within the within the commitments they've made as God loves us when the commitments made to us where it breaks down then we teach people to learn and grow and and, and to love and to learn and, and to love now in a new and, and better way. Bishop, um, yeah. doesn't Jesus the the Pharisees come and ask him the question about divorce and he said, yeah, you're granted divorce because of your hard heartedness. Right. And I and I think that a lot of times that's one way that divorce happens is because someone really hardens hardens their heart towards towards love, like you're saying. So, yeah, that's right. So this 
the statistics on divorce uh, evidently point the finger, or don't point the finger, they just say Christians and non-Christians alike have the same, virtually the same percentage of divorce. Do you want to speak to that? Well, I mean, in a nominally Christian country where you still have over half of the people saying they're Christians, you know, there's there's often an indistinguishable, just, you know, I would say if you if you could find a way to filter out those who take their faith more seriously, mm-hmm. I mean, so I've been here for 30, Seven years, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I've done a hundred marriages, but I've done more than fifty. And I only, I we only hear I say that two or three have been ever divorced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't not happen. Maybe, maybe you know, I would say less than way less than ten percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, a lot, you know, so. so I'm not saying look at us. I, all we do is what churches should do, which is if you're going to do this, you're going to get counseling. Mm-hmm. You're going to go through processes of initiation of what the faith is. Presumably you'll end up in a, a, a church community where there'll be support of that thing. And our culture, unfortunately, oftentimes marriage is, I want to get married. Mm-hmm. You know, and okay, you know, you hire a guy, you go out and vote. There's no preparation, <laughs> and 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 so this 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 stuff that's Hello, not a recipe for Las Vegas. That's not a recipe for success. There's a whole structure of it. I mean, the church we used to meet in in uh, we first came here nineteen uh, first came here nineteen eighty six. Community church in Grand Lamar. We met in their upper room. They did four weddings Saturday, wow. and their that was their major source of income. Wow. And and the and the for their pastor, mm. who got a certain amount for each one on Saturday, and and I know people, and I know two people got married there that both divorced. Yeah. Uh, I was at two of them. Um, yeah. So uh, it's just that the, the whole industry doesn't take it seriously. So the church, in response to this, has to be serious about what it is as the church. And if people don't want to go through the process of doing to get married there, fine, go do it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That we we're we're called to be who we are, mm-hmm. not make you happy, mm-hmm. right? Or not market it. So. I have a couple more verses here to finish chapter three. You've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, "In what way have we wearied Him?" And that you say, "Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them." Or where is the God of justice? They're complaining. You know, the general sense of that is they're complaining, you know, God seems to be, you know, not look, listening to us, and and uh, where's God, and but look at yourself. So you uh, worship marriage the way you order your life is not in a way that, that, that will, will receive the blessing of God. Now, I would say one thing here, too, that, that struck me again in, in this chapter about Malachi is this really sets the stage for our Lord, even though it's 450 years away. Because what do we need? We need someone to keep the covenant. Mm-hmm. Someone to fulfill the righteous mm-hmm. demands of the covenant. Because mm-hmm. people aren't doing it. Mm-hmm. They did in the Old Testament, when you exile, now they come back and rebuild, and, they're do- and now they're not doing it yet. We need someone, our Lord, to, 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 to do it. And then in Him, with the Spirit, we can do it, but we have to take to heart. We can't look for compromises and easy ways out. We have to listen to what God really wants us to do. All right. Next week, we will finish with three and four. Mm-hmm. It will happen. <laughs> so it's actually only, as I, I, hardly any more verses than we did today, mm-hmm. it's, it's only about uh, you know, 24 verses. So we'll get that done. Uh, that's, that's one every two minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, Bishop, um, yeah. may I say something? I, I just wanted to um, say that some of us have been talking about getting together for lunch after uh, next week. I don't know, Bishop, if you're available, but um, just to go across to Taco Rosa and yeah, next week might be. I thought you meant something about today, but I, I could, I could, uh, I'll look, let me double check, but next week would be better. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, well, anyways, afterwards, I can go over early and get the table and all that. I mean, I'll leave right away and get the table, but those of you who would like to go, that'd be wonderful. 
And those of you online too that want to come. <laughs> so. Well, we, we know actually what you could do is um, if you know how many, we could just have Amber over there set us at the table so they know. Okay. Dr. Rosa, so we just they put out and find out who wants to come and get a number okay. of people. So there. Okay. All right. All right, cool. Nice. Let's pray. Lord bless us and keep us. Lord make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Kind of when you read Malachi, it reminds you like that that um, the the, uh, the sort of response when you get like in Josiah or someone, they find the book of the law and read it. They're like, oh, you go, oh. No. oh yeah, oh you mean you mean he said this and he means it. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Bye all, Amy, Jim Phyllis, Connie, Joe, Elizabeth.